to be able to go out there and show the nation that he was handling these things. That on top of his honeymoon having just taken over, he went way ahead in the polls. And we thought we were going to get an election that um, that autumn um, and we were going to be toast. But throughout that period, David Cameron never lost his sense of humor and his sense of fun and his, you know, his even temper. And I was really quite impressed at his ability uh, to smile through even the difficult, most difficult times. Uh, and he had a great sense of humor. My name is Johnny Ball. And I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest. Sir Desmond Swain has been an outspoken voice on the government's approach to the pandemic. A veteran of Iraq and a former close personal confidant to David Cameron, he provides us with some insight to the former PM and how he found being at the centre of number 10. Sir Desmond stays true to his ideological views and explains how this has shaped his approach to politics. It's time for you to meet our guest. Knighted in 2016, we are joined by Sir Desmond Swain, a former teacher, a past pro- uh, parliamentary private secretary to David Cameron, both in and out of government, and a veteran from the Royal Armoured Corps. That's quite a mouthful there, De- Sir Des, but um, how are you? Um, and it's great because we haven't seen each other since we you very kindly met up with me for a brew though, at party conference. But how are you today? I'm fine, actually. Yes, despite um, all the uh, political pressures and um, all that's been going on, I'm I'm in good form. I was going to say there's been a little bit going on in politics since since we met for that brew. But before we get into all of that, um, obviously you are a veteran in politics. Can you tell us a little bit about your military service leading up to that call up for Iraq? Of course. Well, I joined the officer training corps when I was at university, and I, I never really got out of the, the TA. Um, and uh, as my career progressed um, and I got older, uh, when I reached 45, I got um, a snooty letter saying, thanks very much, weekend's in our time, um, you can go. And all my, my colleagues said, oh, Desmond, you've got to stay, you've got to find a way of staying, right to the Duke of Westminster. And against my better judgment, I did. And he said, ah, there is in Woolwich uh, a pool of staff officers, of spare staff officers, what I used to call spares or repair. Uh, And when a large formation is deploying on operations or even on a large exercise, invariably they need watchkeepers and liaison officers uh, who can brief senior officers, watch what's going on, um, uh, have a military take on things, know when it's time to wake up the general, um, and you can join them till you're 55. <laughs> and, uh, so I did. And within a few months of uh, having joined them, I got my call-up papers to go to Iraq. So it was all rather surprising. But it's the only, 
is my only operational service in, I think, 38 years of, as a territorial. Um, and I went off to Iraq in June 2003. Yeah, and you chronicled that for the BBC, of course. I mean, what were some of the, the highlights of that tour? Well, I did. Yes, I, I was asked to do a, um, a radio diary for um, the Today programme, which it runs from sort of, um, I think, five on a, not to the Today programme, the um, PM programme, which is the news at five through till six. Uh, and when I arrived in uh, Basra, the the comms team were not happy with this at all. They said, well, you know, you're not authorised to speak to... Um, uh, but I carried on, did it anyway, and I was summoned to um, headquarters. And the chief of staff said, um, well, I suppose if we were to stop you, it'd be a story, wouldn't it? So I just carried on. <laughs> um, it, the, the highlights, well, it, remember, we I was there at a time when we effectively we were the liberators and we were received as liberators. And we were treated pretty well. I'd been sent to Nazaria to be the liaison officer to the Italian brigade that was deployed there. Uh, and actually, I found it quite difficult going into Nazaria uh, for breakfast in the morning. I'd find it quite difficult to actually paying for anything because people wanted to thank you, wanted to give you things. But the atmosphere changed quite dramatically during the rest of that year. And by November, there was a significant measure of unpleasantness, largely because the growing frustration of, you know, the fact is that we'd, we'd held elections, I think, in August 2003, notwithstanding that the, that the UN had said you can't have um, elections because you haven't got a robust electoral role. Well, actually, every household had a rationing card from the previous regime, the former regime. And so we held elections with a, a household franchise and elected all this local government structure. But the uh, powers that be in Baghdad uh, decided that these local authorities that we elected had elected should have actually no real power. Uh, and where the militias had had no um, uh, showing at all earlier in our tour, increasingly they started to be the movers and shakers because of the frustration that was created by having elected local governments that, and then couldn't actually do anything. And this all tended to compound. Uh, and by the time that I left in November, December, in December 2003, um, we were, you know, we were being bombed and uh, IED just like everyone else down in Basra, up in Nazaria. So you have kind of very much uh, your role. There's lots of eyes and ears on the ground, you know, of what need, needing to know what's going on. Some great transferable skills from politics and the military crossing over there. Uh, it reminds me of um, my, my good friend, now Lord Mark Lancaster, um, and how he deployed as an MP on operations as well, uh, no, most notably into Bosnia and to, um, uh, into Afghanistan as well, while serving as a member of parliament. But um, and speaking of eyes and ears, you were, as mentioned, a parliamentary private secretary to David Cameron, and you are in that role, the eyes and ears of someone quite senior. I mean, what what was it like working so closely with David Cameron? I'm, I'm fascinated to know. 
Well, it's a it's a it's a very funny uh, funny role actually being the parliamentary private secretary. I suppose it's a sort of cross. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a liaison officer, uh, a bit of military assistant, um, uh, and um, a bit of you know being concierge <laughs> to, to 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 pull in another metaphor. Um, so you are there to brief him about exactly what his parliamentary colleagues are thinking, what people are saying, uh, but equally there's a measure of giving advice and your take on things. Um, and then there's a bit of, you know, fixing things, being a bit of a fixer, um, the sort of things you would expect your adjutant to do. There's another role that comes into it, a bit of an adjutant. Um, it was a very, very exciting time, particularly in government. Uh, because you're in number 10, you're at the heart of things, you know exactly what's going on. Um, and I really was was a tremendous privilege being there um, and watching and being at those meetings, being at the cabinet meetings, being at, uh, at meetings with senior military officials. You know, when we went into um, uh, Libya, uh, the, 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 the arrangements to go in there. And then when we were arranging for the relief of the, um, the Yazidis um, uh, and the, the arrangements that went into the COBRA meetings before the, the RAF were deployed. Um, so it really was a fantastic experience to be at the heart of government in what were quite exciting times. I mean, I've very publicly said, and I say to my friends that the reason I got into politics back in 20, 2006 um, was because of David Cameron's, uh, you know, he was breaking through, he was very exciting, very fresh. Some of the things he was talking about, particularly around social responsibility and the big society, really enthused me at the time. But I mean, what was he like as a man to work with day in, day out? I found him very easy to work with um, because although we would, we, we, we're out of different political stables in the sense that I'm uh, the right of the Conservative Party. He was very much more liberal in his outlook than me. But what I was very good about him was that he would always listen. We might disagree, but he'd always listen to your point of view and consider it. Uh, and the other thing that he was so even tempered, I found, you know, even, some of the times it was pretty grim. I remember a particularly dark time was when um, Blair had just left government and Gordon Brown came in and he immediately got this tremendous um, honeymoon uh, with the electorate. And we had a couple of crises, mini crises, which uh, um, allowed him to use, you know, his full uh, authority as prime minister. We had uh, about, about a foot and mouth. There was a terrorist outrage at Glasgow airport. Uh, and then there was um, uh, the floods, the flooding that summer. Uh, and all of those things played greatly to the strength of a sitting prime minister to be able to go out there and show the nation that he was handling these things. That on top of his honeymoon having just taken over, he went way ahead in the polls. And we thought we were going to get an election that um, that autumn um, and we were going to be toast. But throughout that period, David Cameron never lost his sense of humour and his sense of fun and his, you know, his even temper. And I was really quite impressed at his ability uh, to smile through even the difficult, most difficult times. Uh, and he had a great sense of humour. Yeah, I, I remember that moment well, because um, I remember that conference at Blackpool 
um, where uh, I was working. And uh, he knew when, and when David Cameron walked in the room, uh, there was definitely this sense around him. Indeed, it would be interesting to see how he might have um, coped with managing the pandemic. But that is uh, one for another day, perhaps. But But you have been pretty outspoken on the pandemic and, and pretty visual in the media and in parliament as well. Um, when, I mean, when did you reach your position on the pandemic and what has the response been like to your views? Um, mixed. Um, I, I recognise that, you know, well, certainly the polling tells you that, that, that there was huge support uh, for lockdown and indeed tougher measures even that were implemented. Although strangely enough, I, I've never actually found that strength of opinion myself, but that's what the pollsters were telling us. Uh, generally, my um, mailbag has been very, very supportive, overwhelmingly in support of the things, the positions that I've taken, what I've said. But I'm not, I'm not fooled by that. I mean, the, the reality is that people tend to speak to people that agree with them. <laughs> overwhelmingly. Uh, and so you tend to attract people who will agree with you and egg you on uh, rather than criticise you. Certainly that, that's been my experience. Uh, but I, I reached my opinion at the very start because when I was originally briefed as to the plan for how we were going to deal with this, lockdown was no part of it whatsoever. And when initially France started to impose all sorts of very, very restrictive, coercive measures, ordering people to stay at home, requiring them to have this piece of paper signed uh, when they went out, uh, stating exactly what their reasons were for going out. When Boris was asked at a press conference if we'd be going the way of the French, he, he guffawed. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, and then within days, we'd done it. And I just couldn't get over the fact that a conservative government was ordering people as to what they must do, where they may go, what you know, or whom they may meet, and, and telling people they couldn't go to church, they couldn't associate uh, freely. And I thought it was way over the top, uh, and there were much better ways of handling. I'd, I'd have accepted government giving advice, but to be ordered. Uh, what to do, uh, I just found um, totally contrary to my um, way of thinking. Now, if this was going to be a pandemic that threatened our very existence, and no doubt one day one will come, but this certainly wasn't it. And I felt there were much more proportionate ways that we could have used to handle the pandemic. And I think that we overacted throughout and I just think that finally we're starting to see that. And I think for for once, um, well, it's not once, it was it, it, he's done it on a number of occasions. Actually, uh, Boris faced down the advice of some of his scientific advisors uh, just before Christmas and said, no, actually, we're not going to go beyond where we've gone. We won't go as far as Wales and Scotland and impose more restrictive measures. And I think we've finally got that message yeah and on on advice and on advisors and experts do you think that we've reached a position where we are irreversibly influenced by experts on political decision making no i think i i don't think that that, that it's irreversible and, and and i think that what was wrong from the start was the lack of 
competitive advice. Uh, and I think that one of the problems was you'd got, you, you can't blame uh, the scientists for the advice that they gave, which was the best that they could give in the circumstances. And you, you would have, it, uh, and, and it's perfectly proper for an epidemiologist to give epidemiological advice. But even I think that epidemiologist would have expected there to be equally valid advice coming from economists about the consequences of some of the measures that were being proposed. And I felt that that was what was lacking. There was a, a lack of a breadth of advice available to ministers. And the reality was that ministers, not being scientists themselves, were ill-equipped to define the right questions to ask the scientists, to test the the. Um, the advice that they would be giving. And, and that's why I felt there was a need for a much more competitive source of competitive sources of advice um, to actually arm ministers with the right questions to ask the modelers and the epidemiologists who are telling them that we're all, you know, that the hundreds of thousands of people would die if we didn't do X, Y, and Z. Actually, I think most of that proved to be absolutely incorrect. But nevertheless, um, had we had there been competitive sources of advice, um, and had ministers been better able to define the right questions to ask the modelers uh, and the scientists who were advising to take courses of action, I think that we, they would have been a, a lot better. And I think that that's something that governments can do to rectify what went wrong in my estimate, during the pandemic for the future. And I hope that those are lessons that will be learned. The danger is, as I see it, when we get to this stage of the great review of the pandemic, is that people say, ah, oh, well, only, if only he had locked down sooner and much harder, so many fewer people would have died. And I think actually that's not true. Uh, and the, the the danger is you wrong, run, learn the wrong lessons from the pandemic. Yeah, and I think w what you've described there about weighing up all those different courses of action, I think for those of us, particularly myself, of military intelligence background, you, you go through your most likely course of action, your most dangerous. But by the time you've got there, you've come up with about four or five other COAs, as we call them, courses of action, in order to really test uh, robustly all of those different factors where you then will in inform the commander of what you think what you assess is going to happen so i think for for me that's probably been one of my biggest uh, frustrations is that it seems just one course of action has been pursued without robustly testing it against others um but the other thing as well that this whole pandemic has perhaps exposed in terms of leadership and, and politics is the issue of trust and and i recently ran a poll um, actually on um, on Twitter uh, and LinkedIn and compared the the results but what I what that informed me was I asked a question about if people trusted politicians which gets asked all the time of course but 55% said not at all 25% said sometimes 16% yes some individuals to highlight um, and just 4% said always. I mean, is that, are these results surprising to you? Um, and what can we do to regain trust in our political decision makers? Well, uh, it doesn't surprise me because I've never known a 
uh, a time when that wasn't the case. Uh, and I can't remember a time in government when I've been involved in politics when there wasn't, you know, it wasn't a very, you know, I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to identify the time when things, you know, everybody thought everything was going swimmingly. <laughs> uh, and it never has. Uh, and I, I have a very different way of addressing the question that you've asked. And that's to say that, well, you know, hold on a minute. Governments generally don't do things very well. And therefore, the less we expect government to do for us, the better governed we'll be. I, my, my whole political outlook is based on the, the, the notion that you should have smaller, less intrusive government, that we expect to do less for us, to leave us with more of our incomes untaxed, to do more of the things for ourselves. I mean, I take the view that people are better judges of what is good for them and their family than the man in Whitehall is. And I want to move back to that status where the government actually takes up less of the economic activity and output um, of the state. And we get on with our more, more with our lives untroubled by government decision making. Um, and, and, and that would be my way to address the issue that you've raised. Of course, in the current climate, there are all sorts of things that that um, increase that level of distrust, certainly a perception that there's one rule for them and one for the rest, a different one for the rest of us. Um, that certainly exacerbates uh, distrust. And I guess that's that smaller government um, notion, the ideolo ideological notion would be where you and David Cameron would have coalesced um, very firmly, I, I should imagine. Yes, uh, uh, and that was it, that was very much part of it. one of the things that he wanted to do. His talk about the big society was was very much an expectation that civil society would do so much more, um, communities would do so much more for themselves, uh, rather than expect you know they ought to do something about it. In this, in the expectation that there's always some government agency some lever that government will pull to address all our problems. Yeah. Uh, if you live with that expectation, you are bound to be disappointed. Yeah, I remember picking that up with Tom Tugendhat in a previous episode around perhaps whether the big society came too soon um, and uh, David Cameron perhaps came too soon. Um, but anyway, I don't want to keep going on about David Cameron. But in terms of the types of people that you've, I mean, you've been around a bit, um, the types of people you've seen come into politics, you would have experienced you know, the Blair Brown years, you would have experienced the Cameron years, you've experienced what we're going through now with the, the Johnson years. Um, have you seen a change in the types of people coming into politics? Um, and, and what kind of people do you think we need for the future? Well, I think I, I've always taken the view because people ask me all the time, uh, uh, young people who are interested in politics say, you know, how, how do I get into politics? And my advice has always been, go and get a proper job. <laughs> Acquire the dignity of age. Of course, join the political party of your choice that most suits your, your outlook. Get involved, but basically do it whilst you're doing, pursuing an ordinary, uh, another career. And then when you've got that experience of life and the world, that's when you want to become a politician. I'm deeply suspicious 
of politicians who've never really been anything else but politicians, you know, um, agitators of one sort or another, and come into it relatively young. Now, so actually, we've got some fantastic young MPs, but they, you know, it's just because they've pretty quickly, you know, picked up experience of life. I think that's the important thing is that you you have an understanding of the way that the world works um, and, uh, you know, a, a sense of, um, I suppose, confidence based on your own experience and what you've done and what you've achieved. I think that's, that's the best background for, for, for aspiring politicians. I think on that note, so Desmond Swain, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Thanks to our guests and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe now. Alternatively, you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate, donate or become our mate. Thank you.